Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is going to be a problem, it's going to fall off. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidil Anbiya wal Mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man istanna bi sunnatihi ila yawmiddin. Allahumma ja'alna minhum wa min al-lazina amanu wa amilu salihat wa tawasaw bil haq. Once again, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today, alhamdulillah, we were uh, listening to uh, two wonderful surahs of the Quran, Surah Al-Anfal and Surah Al-Tawbah, essentially. And interesting placement of these two surahs, these are the eighth and the ninth surahs of the Quran. Surah Al-Anfal essentially deals with commentary on the spoils of war, as we talked about at Fajr also. Um, uh, in pertaining to the Battle of Badr, the first time the Muslims actually went into battle. And Surah Tawbah is basically commentary on the final occasion of battle in the life of the Prophet So it's the beginning and end of jihad in the seerah of the Messenger والسلام, captured in these two surahs. It's like a, giving you a full picture beginning to end, basically. Even though it occurs in other places. Now what I wanted to highlight inshallah ta'ala, as we said before, uh, this series is really about just addressing some common confusions that Muslims have. Today I want to, uh, to make this a continuation of what we talked about yesterday as far as respecting and honoring the Messenger wasallam. but today from the point of view of the non-Muslim. Yesterday we addressed confusions that come from Muslims, but today some confusions that are brought up or even felt by non-Muslims. And there are two kinds of non-Muslims we're going to talk about today, people of the book, so essentially Christian, the Christian community that is now becoming increasingly interested in studying Islam and talking to their Muslim co-workers about Islam and hopefully bringing them to Christ and whatnot. You know, that's, a lot of that is going on. If you don't already know, a lot of church groups are doing training seminars on Islam nowadays, uh, teaching people, uh, teaching you know, a lot of especially evangelicals on how to make da'wah to the Muslim cab driver and the Muslim guy that works at the gas station or their Muslim accountant or their Muslim doctor. They've got brochures in every language. They've got a Bangla brochure and an Indonesian and an Urdu and a Farsi and an Arabic brochure to give to the Muslims because they need to you know, bring them out of their, their darkness and to light it from their point of view, right? One of their lines of attacks has to do with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that's one kind of attack coming from the people of the book. It's essentially the Christians, we'll talk about that. Another kind of attack comes from the agnos, the academic. This is not a religious person, this is a person who's basically anti-religion altogether. He's, he doesn't just have a problem with Islam, this person has a problem with Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism. He feels basically, as a philosopher, a contemporary philosopher put it, religion is the opiate of the masses, right? Religion is just there to control the people. It's just a, it's just a brainwashing mechanism by which people are kept in control and check. And so his criticism of the Messenger وسلم, is also, it's something a little bit different, okay? Now, what, and they are connected somehow. So let's turn to the people of the book first and address that criticism. They will say that our messengers, they preached love and mercy. And your messenger is a messenger of battles and blood and killing and fighting. And of course, Surah Al-Anfal entirely dedicated to battle and Surah Al-Tawbah really dedicated to battle. 
It's, I mean, uh, because it doesn't even have Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim in the beginning, one of the commentaries on it, like Ali radiallahu anhu said, this surah came down with a sword out of its mane. You know how the sword has a cover? So his figurative analogy of this surah was, it came down with, it, with a naked sword. That's how this surah came. So a pretty tough surah. Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu anhu said, before this surah came, there used to be three kinds of people. There used to be the mu'min, the munafiq, and the kafir. Three kinds of people. After this surah came, there were only two. The mu'min and the kafir, meaning it completely exposed the hypocrite, so it was either black or white. It became that explicitly clear. Anyway, a very uncompromising, very, if you will, controversial surah. A surah that is a favorite of evangelical groups because they love quoting it all the time. They love quoting this surah all the time. Now, one of the things that we're going to talk about today, inshallah ta'ala, as pertaining to this surah in particular, and one of the important events in the life of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa was, he was commanded to kill the disbelievers after a period of four months when, the, when Makkah was conquered the ayah that occurs in the beginning of Surah At-Tawbah فَسِيحُ فِي الْأَرْضِ أَرْبَعَةَ أَشْهُرٍ go walk about in the land for four months know that you're not going to be able to overcome and overpower Allah and then after they're done with four months then basically wipe them, wipe them out complete if you will genocide kill them all okay this is again a favorite of the evangelical mind, right? There's like, oh, look at your messenger, how he commands to torture and all of this, right? On the side, I'll, I'll come to this in a second. Here's another interesting uh, mistranslation that the evangelicals love using. I've seen this used a number of times now. There's a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ gave instructions to Umar radiallahu anhu. What happened was a lot of people were becoming Muslim and some of these people were tribe leaders. So they were a big shot before they became Muslim. But after they became Muslim, they're on equal footing with everybody else. So as Muslims, when they went into battle, you know how the anfal, the spoils of war are distributed equally among the Muslims? They got equal share. But before Islam, when they were leaders, what did, what did they used to get? They used to get a little extra. So now when they, after becoming Muslim, they're getting a less, lesser cut. So they started writing poetry. One of them started writing poetry complaining, I've been humiliated after Islam. He's not leaving Islam, but he's just whining about it in his poetry. And you know, when you make this kind of poetry, he's doing it for satirical reasons, but it's kind of demoralizing to the Muslim army. When other Muslims hear this kind of poetry, it's going to lower their morale. So when the messenger hears about this, وسلم, he tells Umar anhu, lisanahu, cut his tongue off. What the messenger told Umar anhu, cut his tongue off. Evangelicals love this. They say, you, you complain about our prisons and our torture? What about your messenger? You call him mercy to mankind? He told, he told Umar, cut the guy's tongue off just because he was making poetry. What kind of freedom of speech is this? Right? This is what they quote. Now, interestingly, if anyone's ever going to cut something, it's going to be Umar anhu, right? Because so, <laughs> that's what he's known for, radiallahu anhu. What does Umar anhu do? He goes and takes a bag of coins, gold coins, and gives it to the guy. How did Umar radiallahu anhu understand precisely the instructions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam? It's a figure of speech. Karish tongue off means pay him off, so he shuts up, so he stops hurting the morale of the Muslims. But because it literally says Karish tongue off, when they translate, see how it's misused? And we see it on one of their websites and we say, oh yeah, man, they're on to something. I should give this a second thought. I never thought of it that way. So we start getting sort of shaken in our foundation because we don't know our own tradition, our own civilizational history, as well as these people do, and they misquoted and use that to their advantage. Basically, the biggest advantage the non-Muslims have is the, is the ignorance of the Muslims. That's their biggest advantage. 
They can use that to, to their advantage and misquote ayat, misquote a hadith, take things out of context, etc. Now let's come to Surah Tawbah. To understand this idea of executing them after four months, you need to understand a concept called Sunnatullah. Sunnatullah. The legacy and the, the pattern with which Allah does things. Allah says you will not find in the way Allah does things, the legacy of Allah, you will not find any change. Meaning Allah has a set rule. Whoever comes forward and violates that rule, they will get a punishment. Doesn't matter who they are, everyone is equal before that principle of Allah. Here's one principle that even the Christians believe in. When a messenger comes to a nation and he delivers them the message and most of them reject and only very few accept. Hasn't this been the case with most messengers by the way? Most people rejected, very few accepted. Isn't that the case? When this happens, not only are those disbelievers to be punished in hellfire, before they go there, they get a taste of it over here. That nation is destroyed. Maybe it's destroyed by a flood. Maybe it's destroyed by fire from the sky, an earthquake. Whatever the punishment may be, maybe they're crushed between mountains. Whatever the punishment may be, it occurs in this world and then also in the next world. For regular disbelievers, the punishment is guaranteed in the next world. But for people who disbelieve in a messenger while he is still there, while he's in, among them, then those people must be executed and destroyed when? Right then. Save those who believed in the messenger himself, everybody else gets destroyed completely. Now, these messengers, when they came, all of them said basically, fear the punishment. Fear the punishment. And after a few years of hearing, fear the punishment, what did the people start saying? Enough already, bring it. We're tired of hearing, fear the punishment, fear the punishment. The sun rises every day, goes down every night. There's no earthquake, there's no mountains coming against us. You keep talking about the oceans boiling over and the sun and the moon colliding. Please, enough already. Just bring it, right? So they, they would just, in an obnoxious fashion, ask for the punishment. And of course, when they asked for it, Allah would give it to them. He would save those who believe and he would bring the punishment. Now, before the punishment came, these disbelievers would laugh at it. When the messenger would bring up that the nation will be destroyed, they would laugh, what are you going to destroy? You're going to destroy? You and these weak followers of yours? You and what army, as we say nowadays? Right? Well, who's going to destroy us? But once the punishment starts coming, once the punishment starts coming, can they take a moment and say, oh, I guess you were right. Uh, can you pull it back now? We believe already. Does that happen? Too late. Too late. Once it's there, it's there. That's it. Very important word in the Quran. It will come upon them all of a sudden. Meaning they don't get a chance to say, Oh, I guess you were right. Uh, we'll take you seriously from now on. That does not happen. By the way, there's only one nation, there's only one nation in human history that gets to rebel against his, its messenger. Not just one, multiple of them, and they still don't get destroyed. There's only one apparent exception. Who is that? Bani Israel. We'll talk about them at the end, right? But any other nation, when they mock the punishment, once the punishment comes, they're done for. They're finished. And when that punishment does come, no one survives. Nobody survives. The only people who survive are believers. Those who were with the messenger, whoever he may have been, alayhi salatu wasalam. Not even his family will survive if they are disbelievers. Examples of Lut alayhi salam and his family. Examples of Nuh alayhi salam and his family. Right? Not even the family will survive if they don't believe. Only believers will survive such punishment. Now, the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is the final messenger. He's the final messenger. He came to which nation? He came to Quraysh. His, his first audience is the Quraysh. 
most of Quraysh accepted or rejected him they rejected him to the point where they attempted to kill him to the point where he migrated to Medina it's essentially out of necessity first to Taif and eventually to Medina now all of this according to the tradition already established by Allah what does Quraysh deserve? what do they deserve? they deserve to be completely they completely wiped out but now now that's the sunnah of Allah that's the sunnah of Allah when the messenger would warn them of the punishment they would laugh and Allah this time instead of sending punishment from the sky or punishment from a flood or punishment from an earthquake or the earth sinking them in instead of any of those alternatives what punishment did Allah send upon them? He sent upon them the followers of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his army of angels Two things, the believers were the punishment The Sahaba were the punishment The battlefield was the punishment Badr was the punishment Okay, Ahzab was the punishment Later on, Fath Makkah was the punishment Now, at the point when Makkah is conquered The swords of the believers are on the necks of the disbelievers They've been overpowered when the punishment arrives, do you get a chance and say, okay, you know what, I guess you were right, I guess I, I'll believe now. But once the punishment arrived ever before, every time before, what happened? Was there a chance given at that point? No, they were destroyed immediately. But in the case of the Messenger of Allah wasallam, even when he overpowered those high criminals, those criminals who rejected him to his face, they were not executed immediately. How much time were they given even after the punishment had come? Four months. This mercy has never come from Allah No flood ever came And stopped right before it crushed the homes And said four months, think about it It didn't go back Once it came, it came But the punishment that was given at, by Allah At the hands of the believers It came to a stop Four months even now, think about it And in between the lines You can even escape the land if you want You just can't be here anymore you just can't be here anymore. And in that time, you're not being forced to become Muslim either. وَإِنْ أَحَدٌ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ اسْتَجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْهُ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ SubhanAllah Even at this time, if a mushrik comes to you and says, Give me some time, let me hear the kalam of Allah. Let me think about it. I, didn't, I never took it that seriously. I'm not an adamant disbeliever. I just never thought about it seriously. Now that this has come upon our necks, let me give it some thought. Then if he comes and asks you for that, you can't say it's been 23 years, where were you sleeping? You can't say that. What does Allah command him to say? Uh, command the messenger to say, Ajirhu, give him time. Let him go. Hatta yasma'a kalam Allah until he hears the speech of Allah. Thumma then let him go to a safe place and think about it. No pressure. Let him think about it without any pressure. SubhanAllah. So when we say the messenger is the mercy to, to humanity, this is one of the most profound things and it's in keeping with the tradition that the people of the book already believe in. They already believe in the punishment coming to a nation when a messenger is rejected. This is the first thing. Here's the second thing in regards to this. If the messenger, and this is actually, this has to do with the fighting itself. Like they'll complain, Jesus didn't fight anyone. Well, he was getting ready to. Man ansari ansarullah. Who's going to help me towards Allah? Right? And there was an attempt to assassinate him. So we know that there's a, a, a very strong history of Isa salam in the Quran. Musa was commanded to fight. This is in their own books. But nonetheless, they accuse the Muslims. You say, How come your messenger was commanded to fight? It's very simple. There's a difference, and I'll, I'll explain this to you with non religious terms, in simple terms, inshallah. There are two types of uh, <coughs> principles that are sent in a religion. There are moral principles and there are laws. Once again, there are moral principles, moral values, and there are also 
laws. There's a difference between these two things. A moral value is something like be kind to your neighbor. A moral value is something like walk on the earth humbly. A moral value is something like be charitable, be kind, you know, smile in the face of your brother, be, be, be respectful to your parents. These are moral values. This is morality, okay? Be honest, etc., etc. What are laws? Laws are this much percentage of your income comes out and must be paid in zakat. Laws are you must pray on these times of the day. These are laws. You must stay away from riba. That's not a moral injunction. That's a, an actual law. Now, what's the difference between morality and law from a practical point of view? Morality cannot be punished directly. Meaning, if a commandment is, don't raise your voice, because the ugliest voice is the voice of a donkey. Inna ankar al-aswati, hamir. Is that something punishable if you break it? Like if somebody is actually sounding like a donkey and they're walking around. It's immoral, it's unethical from the Qur'an's point of view, but it's still not necessarily punishable. Somebody's walking on the earth, nowadays they're doing the hip-hop walk, right? Their pants are dragging like four feet behind them, right? They're doing one of those. Now, that, that walk, you know, you can't tell if there's humility in it or arrogance, you don't know, because where do those things lie? Inside the heart, right? When Allah says, don't walk on the earth, you know, full of yourself, basically. This is not something you can necessarily enforce. Similarly, kindness to parents. That's a very tricky thing. Because, you know, respect for parents in Pakistan is totally different from respect for parents in America. It's different definitions. Every, every culture has got their own definition. For example, you have people here, I know Muslim families that are you know, indigenous American Muslim families and the son calls the father by his first name and it's all good, right? So he says, so Frank, you wanna go to the masjid or what? And we'll say, okay, Josh, and they go to the masjid. Now, you try doing this at your house with your father. <laughs> How's that gonna go? And it's not, the father's not offended either. It's just that these things are sort of relative. They're sort of relative. Now let's talk about laws. Laws, by definition, are those, if you break them, you are punished. That's basically a de political science definition of a law. Stopping at the red light is not a moral value. What is it? Law. It's a law. Why? What's, what proves that it's a law? If you break it, you'll be punished. If you break it, you'll be punished. That's the, by, by definition, a law cannot be called a law until it is punishable. And you cannot punish until you have authority. Isn't that true? The only reason you can be punished for speeding on the highway is because the police officer has the authority to stop you, right? And you can't have authority until you have power. You have power over those who you are punishing for violating the law. Allah revealed morals to most messengers, but He revealed laws to certain messengers. The law especially was revealed to Musa salam, and all the prophets after him والسلام, reinforced the law the Sharia we call it in Arabic, right? The law given to Musa salam. Our messenger was also given a law. When you have law, you have to have what? You have to have, unless you have the authority to implement that law, it's not a law. It's just advice. Or it's just something nice. If you do it, it's good. If you don't do it, it's not good. Laws by definition. We're not talking about punishable in the next life. That's for morals and laws. They're punishable if you violate them in the next life. In this life, only what is punishable? Laws. Okay, violation of law is punishable in this life. So when the messenger is given law, by definition, it, has to, it cannot be implemented unless it's established. Unless it's established. And this is now part of our deen. Messengers came before our Prophet too, they, they also came. 
they brought morals, most people didn't accept them. And what happened over time? Did the nation, even those who believed, did they fall back into shirk? They fell back, because the majority of the society was what? They were on the wrong path. They weren't on the right path. This is the final messenger. If he does not establish a society that implements the right principles, if he doesn't establish that, what's the danger in a couple of generations? It'll all be gone. It'll all be finished. And if, it's, if it deteriorates again, is there another messenger that will be sent to fix the problem? That's what the messengers have kept coming to do, right? They kept coming to fix the problems. But this is the final messenger. If he does not establish a law, if he doesn't establish a society, وسلم, if Allah does not give him victory on the land to establish the deen of Allah, جل, then the future of humanity is destroyed. Because he didn't just come to the Arabs, he came to all of humanity. The fact that he fought to establish Allah's deen, the fact that Allah commanded him to, give victor, to, to gain victory in that land, that in and of itself is the ultimate mercy of Allah to humanity. You and I, pretty much all of us here, have the benefit of saying La ilaha illallah because the messenger fought. Because of that. That is a mercy of Allah upon humanity. SubhanAllah. So this is, again, this is from the point of view when you're talking to the people of the book. But there's another group that has a criticism. Who's that? The agnost, right? What's the agnostic argument? The agnostic argument is essentially that the religion was spread through sword. the sword. That's the agnostic criticism, okay? They say religion is spread through violence, religion is a means to violence. First of all, World Wars 1 and 2 were not based on religion. And those two combined killed more people than any religious war in history. So if you're saying religion kills, lack of religion kills way more. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's number one, just as an observation. Here's something else though. The Messenger وسلم, his life, even if you don't study his life extensively, every Muslim man, woman, and child knows his life is divided into two parts. What two parts? Makki and Madani. Right, these two parts. In Makkah, is there any fighting? No. In Medina, is there fighting? Yes. Okay. Now we're going to look at the, the life of the Messenger وسلم, from a non-Muslim's point of view, just so you understand certain things. This man at the age of 40, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, we say sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he doesn't, the non-Muslim doesn't. This man at the age of 40 starts delivering this message that is unheard of to these people. They find it laughable. They find it offensive. Some of them find it offensive. Some of them find him insane. Some of them, very few of them, find the message appealing and actually start listening to him. Those who start listening to him start getting pushed to the fringe of society like the crazy people we talked about yesterday. They start getting labeled as crazy. Extreme. Okay? This cult that, that's, that's you know, a threat to the society. But this message keeps on growing. And not only does it pick up along the way the weak and the downtrodden and the, the lack of people without any influence in society, it picks those up too. It starts picking up some influential people along the way too. So when Abu Bakr al-Siddiq is an influential member of society, عنه, Hamza is an influential member of society, Umar bin al-Khattab is an influential member of society. So some, some heavy hitters from society are also now accepting this religion. And the cult from their point of view is getting bigger. It's getting bigger. The problem is increasing. At, up until this point has the cult, what they call a cult, have they raised their hands against anyone? Have they violated anybody's rights, killed anyone, pushed anyone around? Nothing. All they have done is open their mouth. What you would call freedom of speech, right? They're exercising their right to the freedom of speech. That's all they're doing. But as more and more people start accepting this message, they start learning this man isn't just talking about what's going to happen after we die. 
And he's not only talking about nations that came long, long, long ago. He's also saying that we shouldn't kill our baby daughters. He's also saying that we can't cheat each other in business. He's also saying that all people are equal. Right? He's saying these things that are, that are going to hurt our business. He's also saying we can't have these idols here and all these people from all over Arabia come to visit us tourists to our city. Why do they come? Because they have to go visit their local god that's being held hostage in Mecca, right? So if these things go away, our, econ- our whole tourist economy is going to collapse, right? It's like, like somebody saying, shut down Disney World. You know, Orlando's not going to like that because the economy rests upon it. So these, he's not just talking about religious values, he's also talking about morally reforming society, and this moral reform will have di- direct repercussions on how the business operates in that society. So which group of people start getting worried a lot more? Not the poor, but who? The rich and the powerful. The rich and the powerful start worrying about this because they're getting threatened about their power structure. If everybody's equal, we can't have slaves that we can kill at our disposal. If everybody's, you know, if, and if we can't, you know, kill whoever we want, and we can't fight, you know, uh, uh, what do you call, kill, you know, uh, treat our women like property, etc., etc., then this society is going to, the things, they, the way they are, they're going to change. So they find it a problem. So you know what they do? They say, they're, okay, yeah, there's freedom of speech. You can worship any god you want, except the one this cult follows. Every other religion is acceptable, except which one? La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. For a society that was so open, so accepting of different religions, they were, comp- you know, literally freedom of religion that we have in our constitution, that's what they had, freedom of religion. You want to worship a tree, worship a tree. You want to worship the sun, worship the sun. You don't want to worship anything, go ahead, don't worship anything. For that society, they went against their own principles to go against this man's speech, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Does that sound familiar? You have a society that says freedom of religion, freedom of speech, except, right? Except, and slowly what starts happening is let's put a curb on Islam, what's being said, right? So now, anyway, this threat, first they start, you know, if, if the character assassination doesn't work, and accusing him of being insane doesn't work, and calling, him, calling them a cult doesn't work, what's the next thing these desperate, rich, and powerful do? They start physically attacking them. First the followers and then the messenger himself So who was the first one to, re- to actually engage in violence? The quote-unquote cult or that society? That society And in response, did this cult apparently Did they even respond back with violence? No, the commandment was Hold your hands Don't respond with violence And when the violence got completely out of hand To the point where it's just Your survival's in question Maybe we should fight back now, not even then. What was the next thing? Hijrah, migration. Then migration. So who's the criminal so far? Who's actually the criminal so far? It's the Quraysh. And these people that have expelled their own citizens for believing whatever they believe, they've taken over their homes, they've killed some of their family members, they've tortured them. Imagine people of that country, citizens of that country, being tortured, their homes being taken over, them being forced to migrate to another country. Does that sound anything close to fair? Subhanallah. So who are the victims here? It's the messenger and his followers, alayhi salatu wasalam. And their only crime, opening up their mouth about the truth. Reciting the Qur'an was their only crime. So they end up in Medina. And in Medina they receive a warm welcome. And their society starts getting established. Who's really threatened at this point? Again, the Quraysh. 
the Quraysh are threatened at this point. And at this point, when there is even when the the permission was given to the believers to fight them, when that permission was given, you have to understand they had the right to retaliate against those who had already killed them and executed them without just cause. So if you want to talk about international law, none of them were broken. No international law, even to, by today's standards, was broken at the Battle of Badr. And from then on, Uhud and Ahzab and all of the rest. And all of the rest. But here's the, the point I want to close with. If you say that Islam was spread by the sword, are there, in our times, are there countries that are taken over by force? Right? Even in recent history, a country, a village, a, a, you know, a region, a, a territory gets taken over by force and there's violence in that region. And the violence just doesn't stop because people do not accept if somebody else comes over by force. Every, every nation has this, this self-integrity, this, you know, uh, this, uh, this concept of sovereignty and freedom. And when that freedom is threatened, they will fight to the death to, against their occupiers. This is true of Muslims, non-Muslims, anyone. When a country is overtaken, you will find violence in that country. Nobody's going to say, oh, welcome, we were waiting for you to take us over. Nobody does that. You know, so you find violence, for example, in, you know, in rebel groups in many parts of Africa, in Sri Lanka. You find the, the same situation for a long time in Ireland, right? You find the same thing happening in Iraq. It's not, it's not any different from any other part of the world when a nation takes over another. That kind of violence ensues. Now, if in fact the messenger took over by force, what would you necessarily have seen in Mecca after its conquest? You would have seen violence. You would have seen retaliation. What do you see? Complete peace. Complete peace. And not only complete peace, the religion starts spreading like wildfire like never before because people see this as the real peace. Now here's the other thing that you should really think about, especially those of you that are political science students, history students, sociology students. There's very important concepts about the seerah that we should understand. And we should understand our religion in religious terminology and also in secular terminology because you have to engage people who don't know religious terminology. And you have to be able to speak to them in language they understand, right? Here's the thing. The, the political term is a revolution. That in 23 years, the messenger brought about a revolution in Arab society. Okay, that's, that's what the political term is. Can you think of some other revolutions you heard about when you were in high school? You know, if you, if you went to high school in this country, what other revolutions do you read about? The French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. You remember these, right? These are the revolutions you read about. And in these revolutions, one thing overshadows everything else. For example, the communist revolution was essentially economic in nature, a new economic model for the society. The French revolution was essentially a revolution against the church. The church was in complete control. It controlled the flow of information. It controlled who has the right to rule, but now it was replaced with popular democracy, the enlightenment, so if you will, right? In all of these revolutions, was there extreme amounts of violence or did it just happen because some people believed in certain books and minimal violence and the society completely changed? These are some of the bloodiest instances in human history. And the part of the world we call the civilized world, the Western world, Europe, Europe etc., these revolutions took place where? In Europe, some of the bloodiest in history, right? And they brought about change like, you know, the economic structure. But did the language of the people change? No. Did their culture change? Not really. Did the way they eat and sleep and drink, did that change? What they love and what they hate, did that change? Not really. So there was a, you could say there was a change at the top, but there were really no practical changes on the bottom. And there were certainly no changes inside the hearts of people. Here's another comment before we turn to the seerah. 
Let's talk about, for example, the Bolshevik, the, the communist revolution. You know the, the communist manifesto? It's a famous document, right? Das Kapital. You know who wrote that? Karl Marx. Marx was a German. Marx was a German who wrote the document 60 years before the communist revolution. He was not alive when it happened. He never even imagined. You have a guy sitting in a library writing his theory, his philosophy, and decades after his death, people are willing to die for his ideas, right? And kill for them. In other words, what I'm saying is a revolution, it takes a long time for it to boil over. It doesn't happen overnight, especially an ideological revolution. A military revolution can happen overnight, but an ideological revolution like communism or like you know, democracy, these are ideologies. An ideological revolution takes many, many, many generations before it comes to fruition. This is human history, okay? Even the French Revolution, centuries, Voltaire, Rousseau, so many writers for centuries, and then the revolution. The ideas presented by the messenger, first of all, they're not his own. They were revealed to him when he was at the age of 40. And the quote-unquote revolution was complete by the time he was what? 63, how many years? There has never been an ideological revolution in human history in 23 years. Never. There's, that's never happened. Ask your political science professor. And not a military revolution, not a coup. Coups can happen overnight. An ideological change. In other words, what does that mean? In 23 years, what people, their, their purpose in life, what they love, what they hate, how they eat, how they sleep, their economics, their politics, their sociology, their relationships with women, their relationships with their parents, their relationships with each other among themselves, their inheritance laws, their, their dress code, the way they go to the bathroom, the way they clean themselves, everything changed. Everything changed. And how long? 23 years. You, you're not supposed to ask what changed in 23 years. You know what you're forced to ask? What didn't change? You're forced to ask that question. What did not change in 23 years? Subhanallah, it is an unprecedented change in human history, the likes of which have never ever been brought by violence. There is no example in human history that a change like that has been produced by violence. Never, never. So the agnostic claim that Islam spread through violence, or the messenger himself gave victory to Islam by the primary vehicle for which was violence, in and of itself is hollow. And here's a, one last thing, and I'm done, inshallah ta'ala, is about the Battle of Badr. The Battle of Badr, which came up in Surah Al-Anfal. And also the precursor to it was mentioned in Al-Baqarah. You see, in the Battle of Badr, there's few of us and many of them. And we know the spiritual reason why we were given victory. Allah Azza wa Jal gave us victory. The angels, the help of the angels came. We know all of this. But here's a political science reason, a worldly reason also, in addition to these reasons. This is not a negation of these reasons, it's an addition to them. Who were we fighting? The Quraysh. The Quraysh. Do the Quraysh know who they're fighting? Yeah, because a good number of them are also Quraysh. Right? So they're fighting their own people. A lot of the people who are, the thousand that are fighting on behalf of Quraysh, a lot of them know the Muslims for a very long time. Especially Muhammad Rasulullah. They know him for a very long time. Okay? Now, they know that they never stole from them, they never cheated them, they never you know, uh, came after their lives and their properties. They know that who had been the criminal all along? They themselves. Do they have moral, you know, the moral support to actually go and, to go and fight them? You know, when you fight a battle, you have to have sort of a moral justification. We're doing this for freedom. We're doing this for our nation. We're doing this for this or that or the other thing. Do they have that or are they saying, we're killing them now? First, we took their homes. Then we, then we tortured them without, for them just saying, Ahad, 
We tortured them for that reason, and now we're going to try to kill them, even though they're our own people. And they're saying things that we, deep in our hearts, we feel like it's the wrong thing too. And now we're going to go kill them. In other words, what did they not have? Moral strength. Morale. An army depends on what? Morale. And that morale, their morale was empty. It was empty. It, had, it was refueled after Badr because they said, oh, they beat us? We got to beat them back. That's a new morale. But originally, they had no morale at all to go and fight with the Muslims. Actually, we learned that in the, in the debate before Badr, among the kuffar, among themselves, there were some who said, look, if he gets Medina and he starts spreading and he gets more powerful, hey, more power to us. He's Quraysh after all. So why should we fight him? And others said, no, no, no. We have to get rid of this threat. And then the, those who wanted to fight him, like you know Abu Jahl and whatnot, that group, they won because of that incident right outside of uh, Mecca, where there was a skirmish. That, that's, they said, okay, no, they fought us, so we have to go against them. Right? But they didn't have moral justification like the believers did, subhanAllah. The believers had moral justification from a religious point of view, they were commanded. And even from a worldly, secular, United Nations point of view, their homes had been taken. They were the ones that were out, you know, they, they were the ones who were oppressed and expelled from their own land to which they had a birthright. They were born in that land. They had a birthright to that land and to be able to live there freely and to practice the religion that they chose as all the other Arabs did at that time, right? So, you know, I, again, I, I shared this with you and in conclusion, I shared this with you because a lot of times these kinds of things are being propagated and the Muslim doesn't know, forget, we don't know how to respond, we don't know how, even know how to think about it. We don't think about it clearly. And if we do, wallahi, every single attack on Islam, every single one of them, you name it, if it's the right, rights of women, inheritance laws, whatever it may be, slavery, whatever you think is controversial about Islam, if you truly study it, you will find every alternative to it is controversial. And what Allah's deen brings is the clearest, most decent path. If it was explained properly, it would appeal to anyone with an ounce of decency. May Allah Azza wa Jal give us the ability to explain the deen of Allah with clarity to the non-Muslims. May Allah Azza wa Jal open their hearts to Islam and make ourselves and our children a vehicle by which Islam is delivered to this land. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayka. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.